Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. The gig economy, a term you may have heard a time or two in the past couple of years, is defined as an environment in which temporary positions are common and organizations contract with independent workers for short-term engagements. The gig economy has become popular through companies like Uber and Lyft. But as these companies grow, so do the issues with labor law regulations. I'm Corey Dugas, and today we're joined by Professor Miriam Cherry. Professor Cherry is currently the director of the Weffel Center for Employment Law and is an expert in the gig economy. Thank you for joining us today, Miriam. Thanks. Glad to be here. Miriam, can you start off by telling us a little bit about the gig economy and why this type of work has become so popular? Well, I think it's appealing to workers because it promises increased flexibility. So the idea is that you can give someone a ride when you're perhaps already going uh, to a location. And you can work when it's convenient for you. And I think there's also a lot of promises that work will come right to you on your cell phone or maybe Mm -hmm. on your computer. And you can work as much or as little as it might be uh, something that appeals to you at that point in time. So I think those are some of the reasons it's appealing to workers as far as why this is becoming such a phenomenon in general is that I think it's very convenient for customers. So people who are looking for a ride like knowing when they look at their phone that they can see where the Uber driver is Mm -hmm. and that they're located close by. They know how long they're going to have to wait. Um, But another uh, terminology, if you will, for this is the on-demand economy. It's the idea that you're only using things when it's convenient for you. Um, So I think that's part of why this is such a phenomenon or why there are so many new platforms or new businesses that are starting to come into this space and um, really be appealing to both workers and, and to the customers who are using the services. You mentioned that this is also called on-demand, and we've also heard it called the gig economy, and there's some other terminology that's thrown out there. So what should we be calling this type of work? Well, that's a good question, and I think originally we heard a lot of discussion about the sharing economy and that this was about sharing. And I think that that's probably where the where this phenomenon had its roots really was in the idea of sharing resources. So when this Uh, was starting, um, when this trend was really starting back in in, uh, the early 2010s in in Silicon Valley and out in San Francisco, I think the idea was something akin to, you know, um, tool sharing or community libraries, but groups that share resources. So not everyone in San Francisco should have a car. It's too small. Mm -hmm. There's not enough room. Um, It's, it's, there's emissions, there's pollution, and there's it's expensive to keep a car and, and garage it in San Francisco. So I think the idea is, was at the time that neighbors would help each other out and those people with cars could give someone else a ride who, who didn't need it all the time, didn't need a car all the time, but just every now and then. But I think it's really evolved since then. And instead of really being about taking cars off the road or sharing resources, I think we're seeing it more developing into professional opportunities for people. And that's the direction that it's developed into into for-profit companies and into directions where we're seeing uh, it, it almost mirroring professional employment. And that's where we've gotten into trouble, I think, with things like the courts and, and so forth. As far as what we should be calling it, I think probably gig economy 
or on-demand economy really is probably the best terminology at okay. this point, given that it's moved away from the sharing routes that it had. And, and there's still companies, by the way, that do a lot of sharing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not a complete um, misnomer. But, um, you know, the other thing I think I see is that there's this hesitancy or this tendency not to want to call the workers workers, um, to call the people on the platform something else. So um, task rabbits, for example, oh. calling the people who are working um, rabbits. And in some ways, it's cute. It's it's funny. It makes people... But you have to be careful with those words, too. Yeah, but I think language is important. And, and in some ways, it, you know, if you're saying that someone isn't a worker, what does that mean in terms of their identity? And I think that's it's somewhat problematic, right? And it's it, it's hiding the ball a little bit to say, because I think people are actually doing just as much work as they would be if they were sitting in an office or, you know, doing the, the tasks, um, you know, just out in the real world like they are. So this determination on whether or not they're workers, does that have anything to do with how some believe that they're being misclassified in these positions? Yeah, so I think that, again, because of the way this started out and it being called the sharing economy, it obscured the fact that there really was work taking place. And it is, you know, work in exchange for remuneration. And it's, you know, the the, the laws about labor and employment are, are hundreds of years old in some cases, or, or at least, you know, um, in the case of the Fair Labor Standards Act, since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So these are longstanding rules and laws. And yet, I think there was this idea or this implication that Maybe because this is taking place on a platform or it uses the internet or it uses your cell phone, that the normal rules don't apply. And that's what's ended up, I think, getting some of these companies into trouble and has led to the lawsuits. And there's, I'm currently in the process of tracking about 25 different lawsuits wow. that are happening across the United States where the workers are saying, we're employees, we deserve the same kind of benefits. You know, if we get injured on the job, we deserve the same kind of compensation as, as anyone else who um, becomes injured. Or if we lose our job, we're entitled to unemployment. Um, and meanwhile, the companies are saying, well, you're just independent contractors. You're your own business. You're, you're an entrepreneur. You're the one that's in charge of how much you work. And so that's led to all these conflicts in the courts. And, and as of today, right, September 30th, mm-hmm. um, there's no definitive answer yet. And that's why this is such an interesting issue, because it's been playing out for a couple of years. Um, there's been some settlements. There's been some really high-profile cases. But no court has definitively ruled whether these are actually employees or independent contractors. And so it's a really fascinating area of law. Absolutely. These are, you know, there's been a lot of complaints about these labor law violations and other things that you mentioned, especially with Uber. So can you give us some examples so we can kind of hear a little bit about how this plays out in the legal world? Yeah. So the Uber case is actually fascinating. And I and I hope it's okay if I answer a few other questions. Mm-hmm. But um, in the Uber case is really, the Uber case is actually really fascinating because First of all, it was certified as a class action in the Northern District of California. And and many of these cases are actually being brought in California because that's where many of the companies have their headquarters. Mm-hmm. It's where they got their start. It's where they're pulling a lot of their workers from in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
And the labor laws in California actually favor employees. So there's oh, so that's a great place to move forward. Yeah. So that's a lot of the reason that it, it makes sense, you know, that the workers would, would want to bring a lawsuit there. But it also makes sense that the companies, that's their jurisdiction. That's where they're located. So it makes sense that a lot of these issues would, would play out in that geography, in that, ge- in that geographical space. But um, this case has been going on for a number of years, that the Uber drivers and and um, they got certified, the, the drivers in California were certified into a class, and this is the O'Connor versus Uber case. And um, they got certified, they were moving forward, um, they had um, a, a very important, there was a very important motion um, last year that they managed to survive. It looked like they were going towards a trial this past summer. Like there was actually gonna be a trial on whether these were oh. employees or independent contractors. And then just before they were going to have this trial, and maybe we would get some answers, the case settled. And it settled for $100 million. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually not. It when, certainly does sound like a lot of money. Is that yeah. because there were so many people involved Yeah, in this? so there's so many people involved because it's a class action, so they're all merging their claims into one lawsuit, which is a really effective way of bringing a case. But at the same time, it meant that when you disperse the money out to all of those drivers is actually a really small amount. So, and it and the other piece about this settlement was it never resolved the issue of whether they're employees or independent contractors. They just were going to pay some money, and there was some piece of it that was going to say that if you got kicked off the system because your rating fell very low. So I don't know how many people know about this, but if you're an Uber driver and your rating is four out of five stars, it's actually really bad. Oh, no. Yeah, five. Most people rate their driver five stars, and if it starts falling more towards a four, they actually will will kick people off. So part of the settlement was that they weren't going to do that without hearing from the driver first and having a hearing and talking to an arbitrator about it who could help try to figure this out. But um, in any event, it, it, some of the workers were really upset by this because they said it still doesn't resolve whether we're employees. And they were frustrated with their own counsel. So there was a lot of this going on. And then just um, about a month ago, I want to say, um, so to make it clear when that is, that's that would be August of 2016. Mm-hmm. So in August of 2016, the judge said that the settlement of $100 million was inadequate and then sent it back for more negotiations, essentially. And then it's a little complicated because then there's this other piece that's going on with the EULA, which is that click form that people click on that nobody reads. Oh, <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't say that, but very few people read them. But um, in the EULA, it talked about um, arbitration as being your remedy rather than one of these class action lawsuits. And so that issue is playing out too. Can these drivers even really be be heard in court or some of them who click the I agree? So um, that's going to be another issue to think about in as, as the negotiations continue. So as much as you know, it was exciting to think about a trial and maybe that would resolve it. And then it's settled, but now it's back and, and people are talking about, um, you know, is this is this going to be a better settlement or the claims going to move forward? And there's still no answer. So I think it's, it's still frustrating. It's frustrating in some ways because we want answers. But in another way, again, this is still just evolving and playing out. And there's many other lawsuits that are also, you know, courts are trying to figure out what the right answer is. 
Miriam, in, in St. Louis, there's been this lengthy battle between the taxi commission and Uber. Um, since September of 2015, Uber's been allowed to operate illegally. And the St. Louis Mayor Slay has recently said that this practice would end arguing that Uber is not paying fairly. So can you talk just a little bit about this battle with the city and Uber? Sure. So in the way it's been playing out in St. Louis is, is actually more along the lines of how it's been playing out in various jurisdictions in Europe, actually, where it becomes a anti it, it's almost a question of anti-competition law or monopoly law mm-hmm. and um, to some extent um, uber has accused the taxi commission of really trying to protect its own turf and there's actually um, lawsuits in federal court about this because the taxi commission in response is saying that uber isn't properly uh, the drivers aren't properly licensed they don't have chauffeurs license maybe they don't have the background checks and that they're really, they say they're really concerned about safety, not just mm-hmm. about protecting their market. But I do think it's an interesting question about do you have the same playing field for everyone? So is it the kind of situation where taxis um, have to play by a different set of rules that's more difficult or harder or more expensive to comply with, whereas Uber does not? Um, and again, you can debate, I think, the fairness of that. And in the, in the meantime, Uber, I think, has this attitude with different cities where they go in of um, deciding to take over a market and then asking mm-hmm. for permission. Well, they ask for forgiveness, actually, <laughs> rather than asking for permission. Um, and they move in, a- and they afterwards they'll, they'll try to um, – work on complying but in the beginning they want to just get their customer based and 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 they try to have first mover advantage so i think that's that's along the lines of what's playing out here um meanwhile you know our students and a lot of people in the community you know are are using uber in the meantime while this is all unfolding and some of the question just is you know do we need to be concerned about some of the safety issues i think that the taxi commission brings up Mm When we're talking about the gig economy, we've spent a lot of time talking about Uber um, and Lyft and some of the other ride-sharing services, but I know there's other things that fall into this category. Can you tell us a little bit about what those might be? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of activity on things, not not just that are ride-sharing, but also there's delivery services. Um, Instacart um, does groceries. Grubhub does restaurant deliveries. Uh, and these are all through your cell phone, through so through mobile apps, or you can order on the internet. Um, but there's other ones as well uh, that people may not have been may not be as familiar with. But there's ways to work where um, tasks, computer tasks, come through the internet, and they might ask you to do something like tagging photographs or transcription services, for example, that might come through on a service like Mechanical Turk or. Crowdflower and Mechanical Turk is actually run by Amazon. So, oh, okay. yeah, so that's a that's a pretty um, it's a pretty, big company involved. Yeah, in this. it's a pretty major service, and and I think that it's there are lots of different companies. You know, ship for packages, um, uh, TaskRabbit. You can name different kinds of of odd jobs or tasks, and there are home services as well. That if you need someone to fix something at your house, you can make a request through your uh, mobile phone and again these might be very small tasks they might not take very long um, but and they pay by the task so that they're the same basic model as uber you know again the tasks are coming through the cell phone and their individual their um, individual gigs but they're just different subject matter or they might be things that take place only in cyberspace like Mm -hmm. the computer-based tasks is there any estimate on how many people are working in this on-demand employment employment 
Yeah, so Time Magazine actually did a survey, and they actually they said it was a very high number. Um, so they're estimating, um, you know, millions of people, mm-hmm. 14 million people working in the gig economy. Um, but they were also counting Airbnb, which is a major player, but it actually, it, people aren't actually working, they're leasing out space, space. that they already mm-hmm. have. So it, it really, you know, or, or people are, might be sharing property or selling items on something like Etsy. And so they were counting a lot of people that were using those other kinds of services. Um, then Uber did a commission to study um, that Seth Harris and um, Alan Kruger were involved in, and, and they said it was a much smaller number, so only around 400,000. But I think that it's really political how you decide to try to define Mm -hmm. how many people this is, because if you say it's a small number, then maybe we don't need the kind of labor protections that uh, other people have been arguing for. So, you know, some of the numbers, I think, are becoming... Um, subject to a little bit of debate that's based on what people think the right policy outcome might be. Regardless, there's a lot of people that are involved. And so what do you think is a good legal resolution for workers in this gig economy? So I think in some ways, as the gig economy moves away, again, as I said, from sharing into being more of a for-profit professional opportunity, I think we can't just throw away the decades and hundreds of years of labor and employment law. Those laws are actually there for a reason. And I think it makes sense for some of the gig economy companies to start thinking about what it looks like to be in compliance with these laws. At the same time, um, you know, while it is possible to have part-time employees and, and to work with flexible schedules, you don't at the same time, you don't want regulations that would make it impossible for someone to do something like work for 30 minutes a week. And if that's someone's goal is just to give someone else a ride on their way into work and and kind of have Lyft or Uber be sort of a ride-sharing service or carpooling service for them, we wouldn't want to discourage people who are amateurs and doing this as as an extra way to make money, but not as a professional employment. Mm -hmm. So I think you need some kind of carve out or opportunity there for people who really are very part-time or people who really are actually sharing to get an exemption from some of the rules that are out there. So in essence, and I'm thinking about this in, in a paper that I'm writing now, um, you know, some people have proposed the idea of having, you know, even a separate category of workers, not independent contractors, not employees, but maybe dependent contractors that are somewhere in between. And I think it's an interesting idea. But again, if you're if you have people that are actually working close to full time, those people really do deserve the protection of various employment laws. So, again, it's there's not just one answer to this. I think it's more complicated, but what we don't want to do, I think, is give um, certain companies such a leg up on other companies um, that it almost becomes unfair to be able to pay people or give them benefits that, that seem appropriate given the circumstances. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week, Miriam. It's It's been really interesting to hear about the gig, econ- gig economy. It's certainly growing and to hear about um, all the, the legal repercussions that are behind it. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.